0: Every day is a competition against your pride, comfort zone, fear, complacency, snooze alarms, bad habits, bad relationships, and more.
1: What's up, competitors? Welcome back to the Compete Every Day podcast. I'm excited you're here. I'm excited to introduce today's guest to you. If this is your first episode, let me introduce myself. My name is Jake Thompson. I'm the Chief Encouragement Officer at Compete Every Day. I'm your host each and every week here on the show where we talk about the five winning traits of a competitor, how you as a competitor in life can develop your grit, growth mindset, daily practice of gratitude, your pursuit of greatness, and how you're grooming others, how you're that leader in your home, in your office, and in your community. That's what we believe are the five traits of a winning competitor. And those are the topics that we dive into each and every week on this show with our guest so that we can best equip you to continue competing every day in your work, in your training, in your relationships, in your life. Because we believe the better competitors make bigger impacts on the world around us. And we want to see you make those type of impacts. If you haven't gotten in touch with the show yet, please drop me a note, podcast at com. If you're driving, save that one for later when you get to the office. But shoot me an email, podcast at competeeveryday.com. If you're listening to this episode right now, shoot me an email with the subject line, I compete. Subject line, I compete. I'm going to send you back a little something, something. So send me that email to podcast at com with the subject line, I compete. And then be on the lookout for a surprise coming back your way. Today's guest, Brian Levinson and I got connected through actually a mutual friend, Alan Stein Jr. Uh, You can listen to my interview with Alan in episode 40 from season 1, but Brian and I were connected through Alan and I just fell in love with the type of work that Brian's doing. He believes in building relationships by collaborating with his clients so that they can really develop a process that leads to optimizing their opportunities to win moments, maximize potential and enjoy success. He's a mental performance coach and consultant that's worked with a number of different organizations and teams. He's writing a book right now that we dive into a little bit on the show, and he hosts a really cool podcast called The Intentional Performers, about how success is not an accident. Greatness is not an accident. People are taking intentional actions, intentional steps every single day to get there. So if you've ever thought that the idea that, that the good things just happen, that success just falls out of the sky for some people, today's conversation is going to challenge that thought and challenge you to step out of that comfort zone, that honestly excuse, and become someone that believes in taking intentional action every day to become the type of person you desire to be, to make the type of impact that you want to have as a competitor. And so now... Let's dive into my conversation with Brian Levinson. Brian, welcome to the show today.
2: Jake, thanks for having me. I uh, have a podcast as well. I use Zoom as well, which you were talking about before we fired up the mics. And so it's really fun for me to just get to... Answer questions today <laughs> rather than ask them, and I love asking questions for a living. And I really say that that's what I do. But this is going to be fun, and so thank you for giving me the opportunity to reverse roles. And I'm excited to hear what comes out of my mouth. And sometimes uh, I can, I learn from myself from talking. I'm, I'm a little bit of an ex- extrovert, so I'm excited to see where this goes today.
1: No, I, I'm excited a ton because your podcast. of them are you with guests. But I've enjoyed a couple of your solo episode is one of the ones I listened to that stood out because it helped me hear just more from you, um, which I appreciate because you do like to ask the questions, which is a lot of your work with athletes, executives, individuals, because it's through that question asking that you're able to explore more and learn more about them. For our listeners that aren't as familiar with you, Give us a quick snapshot of your work today um, and what you do kind of on a weekly basis.
2: So I really struggle with labels as far as what I do. So I'll give you my background and, and then other people can maybe label me as such. So my background's in sports psychology, went to grad school for sports psychology, got into that field because... I love sports. I mean, I think sports is just easy to love. At least for me, it always was. I, it was the language I best understood. I got it where maybe I didn't get math and science as well. Um, and then uh, this idea that I could help people was just so interesting to me and was probably a bigger passion than sports, to be honest. And so got into sports psychology, really fortunate to have a mentor, uh, Julie Ellion. Shout out to Julie. Uh, Julie got me into this sports psychology world and uh, she's mentored me all the way. Actually, yesterday we did a workshop together at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C., uh, which was really cool. And Julie and I co-presented that. So Got into sports psychology, loved it, have been at it for about eight years now, uh, and along the way started getting calls from people outside the sports world, and I'm sure you can relate to this as well, And. Uh, started doing some executive coaching, uh, loved it, started to realize that sports was just a vehicle. It was just a language, as I said earlier, that I understood. But I love seeing people either unlock their potential or see new possibilities. And with athletes, they're often focused on potential. And we're often drilling in how do we unlock our potential. And a lot of times with executives, I was with the CEO an hour ago, we were just talking about new possibilities for how they could show up, what kind of presence they could bring, how they could listen, how they could communicate, how they can improvise when they are actually in a meeting. So I, I live at the intersection of executive coaching and mental performance coaching. And honestly, I love both of them. So I love working with athletes. I love working with executives. And then there's a, a third component. I love coaching coaches. So I love coaching sport coaches. And I'm optimistic that that's going to be a field that continues to grow in the future. And it's probably the thing that I'm most interested in right now as I explore and I start to do it. I love the impact that you can have if you can help a coach get clear on their message, their vocabulary, their vision, their culture, and what can come of that. So I think I gave you a little bit of uh, background on myself and hopefully that clarified what the heck I do and, and who I am.
1: No, I love that. It gave us a great picture. And I love that you have a passion and wanting to help coaches because it's the coaches that will be able to influence more players, which extends your reach. Um, John Maxwell, the best selling author and speaker talked about when he goes on stage, he can influence someone for a little while. But with his books in leaders' hands, he can influence thousands and millions that he would never see, but he's able to kind of help them with their journey, which is what I love about the work you do and the the passions you have. I want to talk briefly about your podcast, because the name Intentional Performers, I just love. Uh, A lot of times it's easy, especially for those with a fixed mindset to believe successful people just had it all along. Like it just naturally happens for them. There's no intentional action, things done throughout their life to put them in positions to succeed. Uh, And you obviously believe in taking intentional actions every day to become a successful person. What started your journey to wanting to produce this show and share those stories? And how have you seen people intentionally show up in a common, I would say common thread.
2: So it's so interesting. I actually didn't start the podcast with that name. So the name originally was called Beyond the Surface. And the idea was that I was gonna go beyond the surface with performers and you know, go deeper and, and go beyond the playing surface. And I was about 30 episodes in And I would re-listen to the episodes, which are usually pretty painful. If you do that with yourself, it's really uh, it's a good exercise because you can critique yourself and say, "Man, I should have asked." a question this way, or I missed it, Man, yep. you just weren't listening. So it's painful, but it's necessary. And when I re-listened, I noticed a common theme and a common thread, which you're hitting on, which is these people are all intentional. So we had a CEO who would write a note to himself and put it in his wallet to remember to give back to his community. We would have a coach of a wrestling team talk about when he was a national champion wrestler, he would envision bursting out of a mold, like a cast and almost becoming the incredible Hawk. And that was something intentional that he would do. I talked to a WNBA basketball player who after tearing her ACL twice, spray painted her walls and said, no quit in me. These are actions that these people are taking to intentionally dictate to the world from the inside out how they wanted to show up. So honestly, it wasn't necessarily that I was being so intentional with my life. It was that all of these incredible people who had stories to tell and were quote unquote successful were being intentional. So I was away on vacation and I was working on my podcast a little bit and I turned to my wife and I go, I'm going to change the name it should be intentional performers. And it is one of those moments that just sort of happened. I don't know where it came from. And I agree with you. It's a much better fit for what the podcast is all about because it gives me some direction for what I'm looking for when I have guests on is to try to find out, well, what are they intentionally doing? Because I know you've said this before, success leaves clues. And if you really have meaningful conversations with people that are doing some special things, you'll learn that they have some intentional actions that are priming their mind or priming their body to get them to where they want to go.
1: I'm curious on that standpoint, what you've learned or seen for those listening that say, you know, I want to be more intentional with what I do, but how do you even start being intentional with that action? Is it getting a clear picture of who you want to be or where you want to go? Or what is that kind of first step?
2: a good question. I mean, there's so much emphasis today on routine, uh, morning routines, habits, rituals. I love to start either from a place of why or, or a place of how. And so why has been well documented from Simon Sinek. Uh, I think it's, it's really good stuff, you know, starting with why and really thinking about your mission. But I also think how sometimes doesn't get enough credit, which is how do I want to show up? Because I think a lot of people don't know why they do what they do. And that's okay, especially young people. When I was in my 20s, early 20s, I really struggled. I was an arts and sciences major. I graduated from college. I said, who wants to hire a sociology major, African-American studies minor? And no one really raised their hand. Uh, And I didn't really know why I was doing what I was doing, but I just knew I needed some money to pay my rent. And so I think Hal doesn't get enough credit. And developing a philosophy for how I want to be in this world and how I want to show up. And once you can start to think about how you want to show up, the why might start to appear as well. But I love starting at one of those two places, depending on my clients, that's often where we'll start, but not always. I, I'm a pretty adaptable guy and I'm not a one size fits all, fits all guy. So I love asking and trying to learn and trying to figure out what works for people. And, and then we go from there.
1: I love that. I love that. One of the videos on your website talks about your work with the DC United uh, in terms of prepping their players for the draft, the soccer draft. If for anyone listening, that's not familiar with pro soccer. And one of the things that you talked about on there is that talent's important. I mean, all of these guys that you're looking at are talented, but it's character that determines if that talent potential is reached. if, If you're able to live up to that in life, we see so much in the news about people. I mean, the college admission scandal right now and and everything else that's going on. Character is such a big piece. What do you, who are you? What do you stand for? How are you, how do you see that character becomes kind of that missing link between talent reaching potential?
2: Such a great question. Yesterday, as I mentioned, I was at the Fed. This is the Federal Reserve. These people are way smarter than me. I don't I don't, I don't. know your IQ. I know they're smarter than me. And so we're presenting, but before we presented, we started having a conversation with some of their human resources people and they were talking to us. And I, I told them, yeah, I get hired by an MLS team, an NBA team, and they use me to interview their players to help figure out what that person's character is. And for me, character is about values, but not just values, but their order of their values. So let's just use a really simple example. Forget where you stand left or right politically. I'm I'm in Washington D.C., so this is this is par for the course in our world. But forget where you stand politically. Just for a moment, think about Obama's big political value was humanity, healthcare. We need to help people be. You know, it's humanity. And Trump is really talking about security. And regardless of where you what you believe about either of those, you could recognize that Trump is really talking about security and Obama is really talking about humanity. It doesn't mean that one doesn't value humanity and the other doesn't value security. It's that the order of those values are different. So I really believe that a person's character, which by the way, we all have character, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or bad. It's kind of like culture. Like we all have an organization has culture. doesn't necessarily mean it's a good culture or a bad culture, but they have a culture. I think character works the same way. And I don't believe that everybody's all good or anybody's all bad. I think good people can do bad things. and I think bad people can do good things. So I really believe that character is about the order of your values and then how you live those values, how you breathe those values, how, br- how you bring those values into action. Um, so I think that How does, to answer your question, how does character play a role in uh, defining how someone unlocks their potential? I love Bill Belichick says, uh, talent sets the floor, character sets the ceiling. And I think great organizations, by the way, prioritize that and they're clear on what their values are and the order of those values. But I really believe that when a person gets clear on the order of those values and then figures out a game plan to intentionally take action to live out those values, they're putting themselves in a better position to fulfill their potential and giving themselves a better opportunity to fulfill their potential. So I think the inner game runs the outer game. And that doesn't mean I wanted to be a basketball player, man. I'm five foot six. You know, now I weigh more than 100 pounds. But when I was in high school, I was scrawny. Like I wasn't designed to be a basketball player. I wasn't born to be a basketball player. Um, So you need the technical, you need the tactical, and you need the physical to be successful specifically in sports. But the mental and emotional is what unlocks your potential, whatever it might be. I
1: love that. I love that. One of the things that you hit on was people with great character can do bad things and people with bad character can do great things. It's not one or the other for those listening and the reason I'm relating this to sports is in sports, we'll say golf, for instance, if you hit a few bad shots in a row, it's very easy to get in the routine of, oh my gosh, like all you're thinking about is the bad shot. If you're someone that's trying to develop great character and you make a mistake, it's very easy to replay that mistake over and over again, instead of moving forward to it, through it with your work with athletes and executives, how do you encourage them to slowly build that mental resilience that allows you to keep your eyes looking forward instead of constantly replaying what's behind?
2: So if I'm going to say that the inner game runs the outer game, which by the way, is not my word. I think it first came from uh, Galway and inner game of tennis. um, I think he probably got it from somewhere else. So I like anything I say probably came from somewhere at some We're point. We're
1: all repeating each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's
2: all the same stuff. Play present, be where your feet are, be in the moment. You know, I love saying win the moment. Uh, it's all packaged a different way, but a lot of it comes back to being in the present moment. I really do believe that the way you get into that space is from your internal dialogue and the stories that you tell yourself. And so self-talk, one of the distinctions I make that might be different from some other people in our field is that I don't really stress or emphasize positive self-talk. What I emphasize is useful self-talk. Are you being useful? So if you duck hook your golf ball and you put it in the water, in that moment, you're probably not gonna be like, oh, I'm good. Like, let's go. I can't wait to hit my next shot. That's probably not going to be real for you. And if you say that to yourself and don't believe it, it's not going to really impact you in a useful way. So in that moment, you could say, all right, I hit it to my left. If you want to analyze it, analyze it for a few seconds to figure out why, although I don't really recommend doing too much of that in a sport like golf, and then figure out, all right, what can I do on this next shot to make it successful? And I don't really think that's negative. I don't really think that's positive, but that's what's useful to bring us back to the present moment. So I, I worry a little bit about, positivity being talked about too much, because the reality is that life is going to be negative. Uh, If you live long enough, you're going to have people close to you pass away. And I don't think those moments you need to just be positive. I think in those moments, there's a time to be negative. So I think humans are built a certain way for a certain reason. And I think it's important to touch those different emotions and feel them. Um, That's not to say that you necessarily need to have those emotions when you're performing. But, um, you know, I believe that being positive all the time isn't necessarily the answer. And I don't even think it's possible or realistic. So I love the idea of being useful. And oftentimes when we're useful, it leans more positive than negative. So you get there anyway, but you might get there in a more realistic way.
1: I love that. And that ties into just in any situation, uh, pursuing a goal, starting a new career, trying to develop what's the one thing I can do right now that helps me take a step forward? What is the most useful action? What is the most useful self talk thought at that time? You've been working on a book. We were talking about this a little bit before we hopped on air. And the reason I'm fascinated by this book and, and can't wait to dive into it when it's done is you talk about the mindset of preparation different than the mindset of performance. And a lot of times, especially even here with us and and other people in the sports psychology field, we talk about mental toughness, mental resilience, but we never delineate between playing the game and preparing for the game. Tell us a little bit about what fascinated you and leading you into writing a book on this and how in the world do we flip a switch to get our brain to go one way or the other?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't have all the answers so i'm still exploring and i'm hoping to find them and share them it was interesting you said something earlier about speaking and the impact you can have as a speaker and the impact you can have in writing a book and i love coaching one-on-one like i love working with people one-on-one and uh, I love doing speaking gigs because I think it's an opportunity to reach people uh, in a larger capacity. And one of the things I love to talk about is this concept because I think it's not discussed enough. So, this concept, once again, not my original idea. Tom Coughlin in his book, Earn the Right to Win. If you're not familiar with Tom Coughlin, he was the head coach for uh, the New York Giants for a couple of Super Bowls. He's still, I think, a consultant for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And just kind of an old school type guy. Uh, He actually went to my alma mater. He went to Syracuse University. And he, the book's great. Like the book is a story into him adjusting his style, adapting. Talks about Michael Strahan, who a lot of people are familiar with, and his leadership and how it impacted Coughlin. But it's got some awesome gems in there. For example, he says, you know, Monday through Saturday is when you earn your paycheck in football. Sunday should be free. So you should really be focused on Monday through Saturday. Sunday, like that's the game, man. Like that's, that's fun. Uh, so that's always resonated with me. But the biggest thing that I grabbed, and I, I realized that everybody grabs different gems from different conversations and different um, information from different books. But for me, the big takeaway was he said, you to be humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform. And if you go back to when the Giants won the Super Bowl, they echoed that sentiment all season long. It was like their mantra. We're humble enough to prepare, confident enough to perform. And I started thinking about that. And I am somebody who loves polarity. I love things that I don't think the world is black and white, as you probably can guess by some of the things I've already said. And so I love that notion. And I started thinking, interesting, what if I was confident when I was preparing and humble when I was performing? What would that look like? So it might look something like this. Well, I'm good. I don't, need to, I don't need to work on my craft. I don't need to watch film. Why would I need to watch film? Did you see me? I'm great. And then you might get in the game and you might be like, oh, I don't want the ball. I don't want this opportunity. I'm not really that good. Let someone else take that shot. And as I work with athletes over the years at multi, a multitude of levels, even NBA basketball players, what I started to notice is that a lot of performers bring this preparation mind into the performance and it cripples them. And what do I mean by that? They bring perfectionism. They bring fear of failure. They bring, um, really, they bring curiosity, curiosity, amazing. There's so much science and the power of curiosity, really important for growing but when I'm performing. I don't really need to be curious in that moment. I need to be more execution oriented, not thinking about why, but thinking about how, for example, growth mindset. If anyone hasn't read the book mindset by Carol Dweck, it's a must read. It's awesome. And growth mindset, awesome in preparation. When I'm performing, I need to affirm myself. I need to say, I'm good. I'm ready. I've prepared. I've grown now. Like I'm ready to go. And so This just started to jump into my brain. I would be working with clients and I would hear them talk about their mindset and performance and they weren't shifting. So your question about how to shift, they were bringing often their preparation mind into their performance. And I just started saying, all right, instead of being perfectionist in performance, what if we try to be adaptable? What ways could you be adaptable, adjustable? How can you leverage your self-talk? How can you leverage the breath? How can you use the tools of sports psychology to shift out of that perfectionist mindset and into an adaptable mindset? How can we shift out of this fear of failure and into fearlessness? And a lot of times they would tell me, they would come up with their own solutions for what worked for them. And it was incredible to watch. And the other thing that we came up with was practice think about how much of your practice is the preparation mind where you're drilling and trying to get it right and trying to grow and trying to improve and how much of it is scrimmaging or trying to actually be in that performance mind space. So my theory on this, and this is a theory, this isn't research, is that a great practice will involve preparation. And by the way, some perfectionism and some fear of failure, like that's important and some curiosity. And, a great practice will involve your performance mind. And so we'll actually train our performance mind and our preparation mind. So there's three parts to this. You have your preparation mind, you have your performance mind, and then you have practice, which is a combination of the two to unlock your potential. And you see this with great coaches. For example, Great soccer coaches, they play something called small-sided where they'll be playing in a very small field and they'll have to just go very quickly and recover from mistakes really quickly and they'll get in the heat of it. Or you'll watch basketball teams run the shell drill and they have to defend in a certain way. And baseball – they're now using virtual reality to try to uh, simulate what it's like to face a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. So I think there's ways to train your performance mind, and I think we really undertrain it. And the last thing I'll say, I mentioned football earlier. I think football's got this massive challenge right now where – the players are being asked to really be in their preparation mind all week and then flip the switch on Sundays or Saturdays in college football. So you hear a lot of old school football players say, you need to be in pads. You need to be hitting, like you need to get those reps in. And if you follow people like Nick Saban or Bill Belichick, they do bring in the performance mind into their training. And I'm not suggesting that it's the only way to do it, but I want us all to be thinking about our own performance and what can we do to, to a, recognize what is my preparation mind? What is my performance mind? How might my humble preparation actually create an arrogant mind? And what can I do to practice both of them so that I can show up as my best self? I
1: love that, man. That And that is spot on. It's, it's funny that we're talking about this today. I was listening yesterday to Jason Witten of the Dallas Cowboys talking about just the age that they're in in social media and everything else. And he laughs that reporters certain reporters may post on social media that this quarterback had a terrible day he was three of 12 and and passing oh my gosh we're in trouble sunday and jason's like well no this was a practice like we have the practice mindset that we're going to try things and we're going to test it and figure out how this works and how this doesn't so that on friday walkthrough it's a little more performance like everything's sharp no ball hits the ground we're working on flipping that switch. And so when I heard him say it, I was like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. Like, you know it from experience, but you don't think about it as much as a fan. And then to hear you reiterate it and how certain coaches have started picking up on this and successful coaches such as Belichick and Saban are able to train the players in both ways, to flip that switch back and forth. And so um, really appreciate you sharing that. Brian, this has been awesome. I know that you also, you've mentioned it a few times, you do executive coaching, but it's a little bit different than what a standard executive coaching relationship would be because you have an in-person piece of it. You have a small group. Tell me a little bit more about your coaching cohort.
2: Jake, man, you ask awesome questions. I'm, I'm going to have to, when the mics go off, we're going to have to have another conversation about how you synthesize ideas and, and ask questions. So thank you for teeing me up this whole conversation. It's been really fun. You're like a softball. I think of a softball pitcher that's trying to throw the ball and hit a strike zone. Slow pitch softball, not fast pitch softball.
1: <laughs> beer league. Beer league softball. Beer right league the- softball.
2: Yeah. So I, as I said, started in sports psychology. And honestly, when I first started sports psychology, like, I would work with anyone, but like, it ranged from 10 year old golfers to pro athletes. And my days were very diverse because I'd go from an NBA basketball player to a 12 year old golfer. And it was awesome because I got to take things by the way that the 12 year old had some stuff that could help the pro and the pro had some stuff that could help the 12 year old. And, you know, it was different genders and different sports. Like I was never going to be a niche sports guy. I lo- I've worked with Oh, name a sport. I've probably worked with it. And I love that. Like I love learning about rowing or synchronized ice skating or uh, squash. Like I didn't know anything about these sports. So I love being a novice in that, in that way. Um, But I also started to get phone calls from people outside the sports world. And they'd say to me, Hey, Brian, I think about my business in the same way an athlete does. Like I'm trying to compete. I'm trying to win. I'm trying to get to where I want to go. Can you help me? And so I started doing it and applying a lot of what I learned in grad school from sports psychology and just started doing it. And once again, I realized that I love doing it. So I loved it so much that I ended up going back to school and Georgetown university has a certificate program for executive coaching. And it's a really well-respected program. It's an eight month program. It's awesome. And I finished it up this past year. So I finished it up in August. And when I finished up that program, I was in a different place in space than I was when I started my sports psychology practice. And at that point, I could be much more intentional with the work that I wanted to do. And so I I thought about it. And once again, I think ideas come all over the place. So uh, this came when I was in the shower. And I remember getting out of the shower and being like, that's an interesting idea. So the idea I came up with was I wanted to find 10 executives that I could coach and then bring those executives together. Because one of the frustrating things about the sports world I tried is that teams and athletes, they like to be siloed. They don't really like to share secrets. Um, They like to sort of do their thing, compete and and focus on them. And I respect that. And then for years, I would try to bring coaches together from all these different sports so that they could share. And the other thing that's crazy about sports is their schedules are just, a, they're a mess. And it, it's just really hard to sink those people and get them all into a room. But I knew that I'm a connector and I wanted to connect really smart, like-minded people because I believe that all boats rise with a rising tide, right? And so um, I came up with this idea, I'm gonna coach 10 executives and then I'm gonna bring them together at a retreat. And I've done a lot of retreats with teams and with people in the past. And so I love the power of a retreat. When you unplug, uh, the retreat that I do involves some nature. Uh, there's no cell service. There's no Wi-Fi. It's outdoors. Uh, it's meaningful and deep conversation. And so I said, man, how awesome would it be if I could coach these 10 people, do what I love, one-on-one coaching, and then bring these amazing people together so they can learn to each other and where I switched from coach to facilitator. And I was a point guard growing up. So I, I was a coach and a facilitator. That was my role. And there were times where I would take a shot and there were times where I would ask questions to my teammates. Um, but I thought really my best attribute was passing the ball. Um, so that's what I set out to create, so I created this cohort. Uh, we launched our first one in January. The retreat's going to be this June. We filled it. We got ten executives they range in age from thirty to sixty they're in tech they're in government contracting they're in sports they are in real estate, uh, really diverse group of people and Uh, they're all curious. They're all open-minded. They're all driven. They all are successful at what they do, but looking to become more successful and they're from all over the country. And I do some of the conversations in person, some in zoom, depending on where they're at. Um, And I'm launching my second cohort uh, late June, early July. And so if somebody is listening to this and they resonate with some of the things I'm talking about and they want me to ask them a bunch of questions and they can do a self exploration on their own, mindset and how they show up and ways that they can unlock possibility or potential uh I'm always looking for awesome people so uh if you're interested in that uh, feel free to email me. I'll give you my email. It's brian at blevinson.com. And then I'm a big Twitter guy. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Uh, but I hope I answered that question as far as what I'm doing with the executive coaching stuff.
1: Absolutely did. Absolutely did. And so while we're on that note, you shared your email on Twitter. Where can people find your website, learn more about the work you do uh, and more about you and get connected?
2: So I might need to chat with you because your stuff is so clean. As I went on your website, I know you got like uh, and then you've got your podcast website and I'm all over the place, man. Like I, the main place where you can find me is blevinson.com B L E V as in Victor E N S O N.com. My podcast is called intentional performers. There's a website for that intentional performers.com. There's Instagram intentional underscore performers. You got to teach me how to use Instagram because I, it's just not really my thing. Um, but you can find me there. I check all these places. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Brian Levinson. I'm pretty easy to find. And uh, yeah, I just love working with awesome, interesting, highly driven, curious people. And um, if you're that, uh, I would love, a con- love to have a conversation with you. And uh, just really grateful for you taking some time to give me a megaphone and uh, let me share some of the things that I'm really passionate about.
1: Man, I, I learned a ton from this conversation. I appreciate you having some time. For anybody listening, we are linking to Brian's links. His email will all be in the show notes. So you can just open your uh, your podcast app or if you're watching in the browser, check it out there. Brian, dude, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Jake, thanks for all the work you're doing. And I'll put this out there right now. I'd love to have you on, the, on my podcast and we can dive deep into, into your journey and your story and would love to learn more. So uh, look for that as well.